Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of, Her of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This be the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bex. Uh, good morning. If I haven't said good morning to you already, good morning from here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, uh, my name's Andrew. Uh, uh, I lead the team here, um, and it's good to see you, especially if you're visiting, especially if you're new. I hope you feel very welcome, because you are. Um, and I'll be about afterwards if you want to talk to me. Um, but there's far better people in the room to talk to than me, so do that instead. Um, this is, as we've mentioned before, we've been going through the, the, the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, I'll explain what they are in a second, but this is our last one today. Uh, they actually end in Psalm 134, but we're going we're gonna to end in this one, which is really about unity and unity among the people of God. Um, and the reason we're ending this week is because next week uh, we're starting a new series, which is going to run probably the whole way to the summer and maybe into the summer and maybe after the summer, who knows. Um, and we're going to start a series on the Sermon on the Mount um, which I really, really can't wait for. Uh, that is, um, without getting ahead of myself, if you want to go away and read that before next week, please do, I encourage you to do that. It's only three chapters. It's Matthew chapter five, verse, uh, Matthew chapter five through to chapter seven. So, so be reading that in preparation. It's really, uh, it's really Jesus teaching us what the kingdom of God is like. And how to live in the kingdom of God. What does it mean to live as the people of God? But I'm not going to preach next week's sermon yet. Um, we're still in the Psalms of Ascent. And these are also, I think, these are also, uh, they are songs, they're prayers. But they're also uh, instruction, a more poetic instruction, but instruction on how to live as God's people. Um, so the, we've been reminded, if you, if you haven't heard this before, I'll remind you quickly. Um, the, 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 the people of Israel in the Old Testament were, were told to go back to Jerusalem three times a year for these specific festivals. Uh, and these are the songs that they would have sung as they ascended the hill into Jerusalem. That's why they're called the, the Psalms of Ascent. And they were reminded that, 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 uh, that, that God saves them, that, that, that God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt through the festival of Passover. They were reminded that God reigns over them through the festival of Pentecost. That's the given of the, the law, the, the first five books of, 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 our, um, of our Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, and they were reminded God reigns. And then they were reminded that God provides. They went back for the festival of tabernacles, this, this, like, like the Passover festival, or the, the what's the word, harvest festival. Um, and so in that sense, they, they, they weren't just a, a physical pilgrimage like some of us uh, have maybe done physical pilgrimages. Some of us know people that have. Uh, maybe, you've, maybe you've climbed Crook Patrick or something like that. I don't know. Um, that's a, an experience you should do, by the way. Um, that's a very, it's a, it's a cool thing. Um, but, but this is more of a pilgrimage to the very heart of God himself. And that's what we're on, right? As Christians, we're on this journey towards God. We're on this pilgrimage towards the kingdom come. Uh, and so we read these Psalms, we pray these Psalms, and we study these Psalms uh, so that we will learn how to live in light of that. How do we live on this journey? The New Testament, the book of Peter, tells us that we are exiles, we are sojourners, because we no longer belong to this world, right? We belong to the kingdom of God. And so as these sojourners and, and pilgrim, pilgrims, I almost said pilgrimers, pilgrims, how, do we, how are we to live? And these Psalms have painted a picture for us of God's people in God's place under God's rule. 
And that's the way he's designed us to live. And that's what he's designed for us. Um, And in this last one, we're going to see a very specific part of being the people of God. Uh, which is unity within, within the people, unity within the body. So, so let me pray and ask for God's help uh, because we do need God's help, don't we? Um, because our, our minds will wander and our hearts are not in it and all the rest of it. So let me pray and ask for the Lord to be with us. Father, we, um, we want to give you praise and honor and we do that through singing, we do that through giving, we do that through prayer and confessing our sins, but we do that by, uh, as well by sitting under your word, by, by, by saying that, that your word has, uh, ha, your words are the words of eternal life, that your words teach us how to live. So Lord, as we kind of sit under your word and submit to you in this way, Lord, may you receive that as an act of worship this morning, and may you instruct us how to live, and may it be for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, most of you, I'm guessing have brothers and sisters, right? A show of hands, who has brother? A, at least one brother or sister, one sibling. Okay, so that's like you know most people in the room this morning. Um, I grew up with four sisters and no brothers, so yes, pity me. And I was bullied. They'll say I wasn't, but I was. And we used to fight all the time. We would fight. And my sister Jillian, um, who I've spoken about a lot, and a lot of you met her. Um, she used to beat me up, something shocking, all the time. And she did this thing where she would grab my ear. I'm not even joking. You can talk to my mom and she'll testify this. She'd grab my ear and she would twist my ear as hard as she could until it was red and she'd hold me up against the wall and there was nothing I could do and I would just be stood there crying. And this went on until I was about probably 15 and I realized, hold on a second, I'm a lot bigger than you. So then the tables kind of turned and the fights got a bit more even. Um, But the point is, no matter how much we fought, whether it was play fighting, whether it was earnest, whether we actually hated each other, the point remained that we were still family, that we still had the same parents, that we still had the same blood. And it's the same if you're a Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you're in the family of God. So you may say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to go to church. I don't want to engage with the church. I don't want to become a member. I don't want to commit to it. I don't want to serve. I don't want to do with other Christians. But, but the Bible actually says that's impossible, because when you're, you're saved, you're actually born into a new family, okay? Jesus talks about being born again, and you're born into this new family. So whether or not you engage with the church, whether or not you count yourself part of the church, you're actually part of God's family. The Bible doesn't have a category for, for being a Christian and not being part of the church. Uh, it's, it's just impossible. And you see, this is how God, God works. God works by creating people for himself, Even starting with God himself, God in his very nature is what? He is three in one. He's a community within himself. He's not just one. And and as he creates the world and creates us pouring out of himself, he, he creates a community of people. You think about, if you ever read Genesis 1, he looks at creation. Each step he creates something, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But it wasn't until he created Eve that creation was complete, and he said, that's very good. It wasn't until there was community that God said, that's very good. And then out of, out of the, the people, he calls Abraham and Sarah, and they create a family, a people of God. And out of that family comes a nation, a people of God. And out of that nation comes Jesus himself, and he creates us, the, his family, the body of Christ, the church. And if we fast forward to the book of Revelation, what do we see? We see at the end of all things, or I should say at the beginning of all things, at the beginning of all things, you see a multitude that no one can number from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping Jesus together. 
We are the people of God. And if you're a Christian, you're part of that people. So the question then isn't how do we become the people of God or how do we make ourselves the people of God. The question is how do we live as the people of God. And the good news is that the Bible is full of instruction on how to do that. We just talked about that. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, which is God saying, here's how the people of God should live. We've been doing these Psalms, which are about different things like mercy and joy and corporate worship and, and today, unity. Psalm 133 is a Psalm about unity. But before we start looking at what this unity is like, we need to ask ourselves, what is unity? Well, in the biblical sense, it's more than just agreement, right? It's more than just, uh, we'll get along. It's more than just when me and my sister would make up after a fight and watch cartoons together. No, it's more than that. It's much deeper meaning than this. So the Hebrew word that's used here in verse 1 of this psalm, when the brothers dwell in unity, it's this, uh, it's this word yahad in Hebrew. You don't need to remember that. But it has this idea of oneness, of togetherness. Oneness is the best way to describe it because it's actually based on another Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for the number one. Yahad. So the, the Hebrew people in the Old Testament were told, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. He is one. And so in this sense, in, in this, he, what he's saying, he's saying it's good and pleasant when the brothers dwell in oneness. It's a unity that's based on the oneness of God. And he says it's good and pleasant when the people of God dwell in this oneness. When we have oneness based in God, it's good and pleasant. But what does it mean to dwell in that? Well, that word just simply means to, to live, to stay, to remain. to make. It's literally to make your home. So we, the people of God, are called to make our home in oneness. That sounds like a big phrase, so we're going to unpack that. But it's about realizing that we're, we're all connected by something outside of ourselves. It's not just about, uh, it's not just about having, the, having friendship. It's not just about uh, the stage of life that we're at. It's not just about uh, common interest. It's, it's deeper than friendship. This is the kind of uni- unity that this psalm is talking about. So if this is the kind of unity that we're called to live in, here's the question I want to ask and want to answer this morning. What is the key to living in oneness. What is the key to making our home in oneness? And this psalm is going to tell us how to do that and tell us what this means. There's three things I want to point out, luckily, because there's three verses in the psalm. Um, somebody said to me, is, you know, uh, only three verses, that means it's like a shorter sermon. I'm like, nah, <laughs> definitely not. Then it gets longer. Um, three verses, three lessons. The first thing I want us to notice is from verse one, the goodness of unity. The goodness of unity. If you have a Bible open, uh, keep, just keep it open because we're going to be dipping in and out of, of this uh, passage and other passages. Listen to what he says. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, can you imagine the scene? We've talked about this a lot during this series. They're all uh, pilgrimaging. Uh, is that the word, pilgrimaging? They're all heading back to Jerusalem. And they're all heading back there to worship the one God. And they're all going with the one heart and with the one mind. And they're all singing the one song. And David sees this. And he says, look. He says, behold. He says, see how good this is. This, there's this word, behold. It's, it's what, when, when John sees Jesus coming along, he says, behold. It's like, look. It's an exclamation. And he says, look how good this is. See this. And he says two things about it. He says, it's good and it's pleasant. Now, 
you might think that those uh, two, two good and pleasant are kind of the, the same thing, that they're synonymous. They're, they're, well, they're actually not. They're two different words in English, and they're two different words in the original language. So when we hear the word good in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, we can remember back to what we've already mentioned, the creation story, right? What did God say when he created something? He said, it's good. It's good. It's good. Four goods and then a very good. And so it just simply means that it's right. It's the way things are meant to be. It's the way God created things to be. Dwelling in unity is something that God intended to be. It's right. Living in oneness as the people of God is the way that that he intended us to be. It's the way he intended his people to be. And it was only after that we sin and when we reject God uh, and the fall comes in that, 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 that the oneness is broken. That we no longer have relationship with him and we no longer have relationship with each other. And so if it's something good and it's something right and it's something that God intended to be, then it's something that we should strive for. It's something that that we should work towards. It's something that we put effort into. But also he says it's pleasant. Now this language is also, this word is also used in creation. The the garden where where Adam and Eve, the first human beings are put, right? It says that the, the trees and the fruit is pleasant to look at. It's pleasant for the senses, It's also used, this word, in relation to relationships and music. Things that we take joy in. Things that we just enjoy. Who doesn't enjoy their favorite music? Who doesn't enjoy their best friend's company? And so pleasant, in this sense, just means delightful. It means it's something to take pleasure in. It means it's something to be enjoyed. So when you put these things together, good and pleasant, there's there's a double there, right? You get, it's something that we should strive for. It's the way things ought to be. But it's also something that we should enjoy. See, God doesn't just give us commands like like Rachel said. He doesn't give us commands so that he can be some kind of dictator. No, it's for our joy. It's for our benefit. So living in oneness, making our home in oneness, it's a requirement. But it's also for our rejoicing. It's something we're required to do, but it's also something that, that we're to rejoice in. It's what we ought to do, but it's also what we want to do. It's something we should do, but also something we get to do. If you want to continue the alliteration, it's our duty and it's our delight. And that's the sweet spot, isn't it? It's, something, it's when we obey God and we realize it's delightful that we realize, wait a minute, God's design for us is actually good. It actually gives us joy. God has created a way for his people to live. And we, when we walk in that way, we find that it's actually really pleasant. It's delightful. It's to be savored. It's joyful. It's like hanging out with your best friends and listening to your favorite music and and eating your favorite food and drinking your favorite wine all at the same time. See, God could have just commanded. David could have said that. He could have said, look at this. You have to do this. But he doesn't do that. He paints this beautiful picture. He says this is joyful. And the way he describes it, and we'll look at that in a second, the way he describes it paints this joyful, uh, delicious picture of what unity is like. It's funny that he uses the word uh, pleasant, pleasurable, because living in unity with your brothers and sisters and and the family of God, that doesn't probably spring to mind whenever you hear the word pleasure, right? It certainly doesn't for me. When I hear the word pleasure, I think of, of the way maybe the world thinks of it. It's become tarnished, so you think of sexual things, you think of sensual things, you think of maybe even something seedy and wrong, right? But here David paints a different picture of pleasure. It's good, that is, it's right, and it's a way 
God intended things to be, and it's pleasurable. It's right, and it's delightful. And so if it's good and pleasant, then it's the right kind of pleasure. It's a pleasure that God has ordained. He's saying, go and do this. Like, like when a husband and wife in, in, enjoy a physical intimacy in a marriage, it's, it's God saying, that's good and right and enjoy it. Have at it. Go nuts. Too much. Did I go too far? Did I step over a line there? It's a pleasure that God looks at and he says, that is very good. And that's what he desires us to have. And, but I want to ask this question. How often do we reject that? How often do we reject unity? How often do we say... I can't be bothered spending time with the church this week. How often do we say, I really, you know, I've had a long week. I don't need that. I don't need to be with these people. Or when conflict comes, do, 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 we, do we push through and resolve that? Or do we kind of back off and hope that it will resolve itself and just leave the disunity hanging in the air? You see, we're united in Christ, yes. We are one body, yes. We're part of the same family, Yes. But the point is, unless me and my sister made up after a fight, we weren't living in unity. Still part of the same family, but there was no unity there. Maybe I just sit gently at this point and ask you, is there somebody you need to make amends with? Is there somebody you need to, to reconcile with? Are you living within the oneness with the people of God? It's our duty and our delight. And we have access to this blessing when we live in oneness. That's the goodness of unity. But then David goes on, he goes into detail. I love this, he, he doesn't say, well, it's like this word that means this, the way I've just done. He, he paints these pictures with his words. And in verse two, and in, in the first half of verse three, we get our next lesson, which is the source of unity. Let's look at verse two and in, in, in uh, the first half of verse three together. He says this, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. He gives us these two similes, right? A simile is when something says, it's like this. Looking at Rachel, she's an English teacher. Is that right? Yes, it's like this. He's not saying that it is oil or it is dew. He's saying it's like these things. Now, you might not know this about me, but I do like a good beard oil. I don't, maybe, no, no big beards in the room except mine, but a beard oil is good, right? You don't get flaky, uh, dry skin. It keeps it soft, you know? If anyone wants to feel it, that's fine. But this word precious that he uses here in verse 2 to describe this oil, it's, it's the same word as he uses for good in verse 1. Exactly the same word in Hebrew. There's something right about it. It's the way God ordained it to be. It's the way God designed it to be. But why does he use oil, this oil? He doesn't say oil. He says the, the precious oil, the good oil. Why? Why does he decide to use this as an illustration? Well, he's talking about Aaron, the priest. Aaron, if you don't know, was the brother of Moses. And Aaron and all Aaron's descendants were the priests in Israel. And so their job was essentially to mediate between God and the people. So they were the ones who offered the sacrifices. They were the ones who would go into the Holy of Holy in the temple. They were the ones who would uh, declare that the, the people's sins were forgiven on the Day of Atonement. But they had to be set aside for this work. They were consecrated. And so listen to this, uh, this description of how that happens from Exodus chapter 30. This is, this is the Lord commanding Moses and saying, this is what you need to do. And he says, it's Exodus 30, 
uh, verses 22 to 31, if you're, if you're uh, taking notes. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of the sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250. I like that he clarifies half of 500. And 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. Okay, so what you have is is this recipe in the Bible of, of olive oil and all these spices. Put them together, and you get this sweet, fragrant oil. And you shall make these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. So there's a guy or a woman or whoever, the perfumer, you know, Estee Lauder in there mixing up the, is Estee Lauder makes perfume, right? I knew that much. Mixing up this oil. And this is what it said. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may, may be most holy. This oil is used to make things holy, but then listen to this. Whatever, it t- whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron. And his sons, and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. What's happening here? It's not about the oil, it's about what the oil represents. As with all the things we celebrate in church, it's not about the bread and wine, it's about what the bread and wine represent. Anointing, uh, anointing Aaron with oil set him as, as, apart as holy. He was, no longer, he, he was no longer just Aaron. He was Aaron the priest. He was Aaron who, who was to uh, uh, mediate between God and the people. He became a minister. A minister of God, if you like. And the oil is this, uh, this symbol of divine blessing. Living in oneness, then, is this divine blessing. It's like this. It shows that we're set apart. It shows that we're different from the world. When we dwell in unity. Isn't that cool? And we don't deserve it. But we get this excessive blessing. Think about this. Getting oil poured on you. It's on his head and it's run down through his beard. And then it's on his robes. Like That sounds horrible to us. Doesn't it? Like, ah, I want to get this washed off. But the point is, it's not just a tiny drop of oil. They're pouring that stuff on. It's flowing down. It's excessive. And isn't that how God blesses us when we dwell in unity? Isn't that what the blessing of, all the blessings of God are like? It's excessive. It overpours. How does, uh, how does John in his gospel in the first chapter describe the grace that, that God gives us through Jesus? He says grace upon grace. It's excessive. And so we live in this unity and we never take it for granted. But he also says that the unity is like the Jew of Hermon which falls in the mountains of Zion. So um, I don't know how your uh, ancient, uh, ancient Israeli geography is, but I, for one, had to look this up. Uh, so Hermon, is, uh, the, the, it's no longer in the, it's not in modern-day Israel, but in ancient Israel, it's the tallest mountain in ancient Israel, way up in the north. And it stands about 9,200 feet tall. And, and it's one of those mountains that's, that's always covered in snow. It's got snow on the top. That's how tall it is. And what would happen would be that that snow, that moisture, would create a, a heavy dew that would fall on the lower peaks. So 100 or so miles to the south of that is Jerusalem. And, and Jerusalem's on a hill, as we've said, but it's, it's a lot smaller. It's only about 2,000 feet. 
And so this Jew would come down to Zion, the, 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 the mountain of, of Jerusalem, and would, would bring moisture and life and growth. And without that, it would just be a dry desert. But this Jew that comes from, from mountain comes down upon Jerusalem and creates moisture and life. In other words, it means that growth can take place. These things growing together, the people of God living in oneness, dwelling together. And so these symbols of rich blessing, whether it's a life-giving dew that falls or whether it's, uh, it's an oil that flows down representing God's blessing, the point is they flow down. Now can you imagine as these people are singing this song and they're going up, the whole journey has been about ascending. It's about being about going up. It's about being about lifting your eyes up. It's about going up to Jerusalem and then all of a sudden, David says, the oil runs down. Runs down on his beard, runs down on his collar. The dew falls on the mountains. And both these things flow down, the dew and the oil. And they're, they're said this way so that we remember that the blessing of unity doesn't start with us. It starts with God. It's God's thing and it flows down to us. We can't manufacture this. True unity, it's not something we achieve, it's not something we achieve, it's something we receive, right? So we can work and work and work and try to have unity, and all we might get would be agreement or accord, but it'll be surface level. We can try to get along. We can do our best, and those things are important, but they're not real oneness. Real oneness, making our home in real oneness, comes from God. And so when unity is lacking, we pursue it. We don't produce it, but we pursue it nonetheless. And we see this in Ephesians when Paul is writing to the church there. And he's talking about the, 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 he's talking about the unity that exists between the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And he doesn't say, okay, here's all the things that you guys need to do. Here's all the things you guys need to get over in order to have unity. He doesn't do that at all. He starts in chapter 1 of Ephesians and he says... Um, Here's who you were, and here's what God has done for you. And then he goes on, and he says, listen, uh, look at what Jesus has done for you, and look what you've received through faith, not your works. He's very, he's very clear on that in Ephesians. He says, this isn't something that, that you've mustered up yourself. So to emphasize their unity and to get them to live in unity, he just reminds them of the unity that they have in Jesus. So when unity is lacking... We don't try and manufacture this surface level thing together. We go back to the gospel of Jesus. We remember, hey, we are different. But you know what? We're both sinners. And Jesus died for us. And now somehow we're united with him. And so therefore we're united together. And then the thing that, the, the, the difference between us that annoyed us, that doesn't seem so big anymore. Listen to what Paul says. He says this, I therefore a prisoner of the Lord. He was in prison when he wrote this. Unbelievable. And he says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your, your, belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice how you keep saying one. This isn't him describing some uh, conflict resolution course or something like that. 
This is him talking about the deepest source of unity. It comes from God himself. He describes it like this. We're one body. We're, we're the church. We're, we're the body of Christ. One spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who gives us life and binds us together. We have one hope. We don't all have separate hopes. No. Maybe we have different aspirations in this life. But our one hope is that one day Jesus is going to come back and make all of this new. And we're going to live and reign and rule with him forever. That's our one hope. We have one Lord. Jesus Christ. We don't all have different things that we worship. We have one Lord that we worship, one Lord that we submit to in our lives, Jesus Christ. We have one baptism. He's not talking about uh, do you practice infant baptism or, or believers baptism or those things. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that we're all baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized into the church. We have one God and Father. God the Father, the source and the author and the sustainer of all of this. He's in us. He's through us. He's over us. That's why we're one. Because we have been united. We've been reconciled to God because of Jesus. This is why we have unity. So how do we pursue unity? We remember and apply the gospel of Jesus. Because it's through the gospel of Jesus that God has united us to himself. And unity with each other. The unity that is such a blessing. The unity that is both good and, and right. The unity that is both duty and delight. That unity is only possible and only exists because God, because God has done that to us through Jesus. And what I love about that passage in Ephesians, and I'm going to take a little uh, sidestep here, is, is that actually what he's remembering here is this prayer of Jesus in John 17. If you, if, if, you, if you haven't read that in a while or if you've never read it, go and read John 17. This is, the, this is Jesus just about to die. He's just about to go to the cross and he's praying this prayer and he actually prays for his disciples and he prays, he also says he's praying for everyone that will believe in him. So that's us. <laughs> and he says this, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Man, what a blessing. Jesus is praying that we would have, unity, have the unity that God has within himself, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally enjoyed. And he's saying, I'm praying for these people that they would have the same unity. In other words, the church is to be united with the same unity that God has within himself. Isn't that powerful? That's the kind of unity that can't be broken by disagreeing over, over who pays the bill or, or, or over what you think someone said about you. That's not the kind of unity that can be broken by talking behind someone's back. This is a deep unity that's based on the very nature of God himself. And this is, this is why we seek, as Paul says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so from that reality, from that truth, we flee things that cause division, right? So we don't gossip. Instead, we, we encourage. We don't slander or tell lies about each other. We tell the truth and build each other up. We don't judge people or those among us that are struggling with X, Y, or Z. No, we don't judge them. We love them and support them and carry them if we need to. And we don't love people in a transactional way. It's not about how much enjoyment I'll get out of spending time with you. It's not about what you can give me. We love them because they're made in the image of God and because we are united together in Jesus. And we don't let conflict fester and, and turn into grudges and, and grumbles. We're quick to forgive because you know what Rachel just read for us? 
Guess who's quick to forgive? God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is why we're quick to forgive. We don't hold grudges. Listen, we're a, we're a young church. Next, next Sunday will be five months. But I, I guarantee you that if we don't flee from division and pursue to maintain the unity of the Spirit, this church will die. How many times have you seen churches die because of disunity? How many times have you seen families torn apart because of disunity? And if we don't seek to pursue unity and preserve unity, this church will die. That's why we remember the gospel. That's why we share the gospel with each other all the time. That's why we love each other the way that Jesus loved us. We need to flee disunity and pursue this, making our home in oneness. So that's the goodness of unity. We pursue it because it's our duty and our delight. And then we have the source of unity. We pursue it by remembering and applying the gospel of Jesus. And finally then, the last part of verse 3, the blessing of unity. The, the, The last sentence, he says this, For there the Lord, Yahweh, has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This can be a bit tricky to understand this verse, I think, sometimes. But we want, to be, we want to be clear about what it says. The, the there that he's talking about, for there, the there that he's talking about is the place where uh, the, the, the brothers dwell in unity. It's the place of unity. It's the place where the people of God are living in oneness. It's when we live in the, that's good, that's the very good of creation. It's when we live in the way that things are ought to be. In other words, it's God's people in God's place living under God's rule. This is how we were commanded to live and enjoy God forever. And and we've already seen this, and with all parts of when God tells us how to live, it's not just an empty command. It's for our joy. It's for our blessing. It's for our flourishing. It's for our benefit. God says, hey, live this way, and we do it, and we discover this is actually the best way to live. And when we live in oneness, we experience eternal life here and now. When we make our home in unity with one another, we live in the unity that we have in Jesus. We're experiencing the kingdom of God here and now in our daily lives, in the church. See, we, I've said this before, but we often tend to think of um, eternal life as just something that comes after we die, don't we? I, I mean, maybe that's just me, but that's the way I kind of grew up thinking of eternal life and the way I was taught of that. It's like something that you get after you die. But that's not what eternal life is. When Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. He's like, I'm bringing the kingdom now. And he is now continuing that work of bringing the kingdom through us, through the church. It's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes in village we pray in Belfast as it is in heaven. Because we want the truth and the reality and the goodness of the kingdom of God to be here now. So we live the kingdom of God right now. We experience its benefits right here, right now. And when we pursue unity, when we pursue unity in God, when we we make our home in oneness with one another, quick to forgive, not gossiping, loving each other sacrificially, we're actually practicing the kingdom of God here and now. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That we get to experience a bit of heaven on earth. But it's not just about here and now. It's not just about the church getting along with one another. It's about forever. 
The Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That's what he says. That's what God says. God has commanded the blessing of everlasting life. Now think about that carefully for a second. God has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God has spoken and there is life. God speaks and there is life. God's word brings life. We saw this and we, we haven't looked at it today, but we've seen it briefly uh, in creation. God speaks and life is formed. God's word brings life. And so it is with us when we become Christians. We were spiritually dead. But guess what? God speaks and he has spoken life into us. We were dead, but the word of God has made us alive. His word means that we are alive. Listen to what Romans 5 verse 1 tells us. Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous. That, you know what I mean? That's a verdict. That's a, that's a, that's a forensic verdict, verdict. That God says, you are righteous. We have been declared righteous. All of you. If you're a Christian, you've been declared righteous. There's, there's nothing more to pay for. There's no more striving to do. We're free. Guess what? If a, if a, if a thief is in court and, and, and the judge says, not guilty, there's no sentence. He doesn't say, okay, but uh, should I not do some community service to add on to my freedom here? Should I not, do, should I not try and do extra here to, to make me more free? No, he doesn't do that at all. He walks out of the courtroom a free man. In the eyes of the law, he's declared free. And that's what it is for us. When you put your trust in Jesus, we've been declared not guilty. And look what it says. He says, we have peace with God. We have shalom with God. If you were with us for Advent, when we looked at this word shalom, you remember what it means? It means wholeness. It means oneness. We have, because of that not guilty verdict, you have oneness with God. You have unity with God. And it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same as always, isn't it? All the time. Every passage we look at. Every part of our life. Every part of, of, of our faith. It all comes back to Jesus. Christ is all. And if we want to walk in unity with one another, it can only be in Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to fail. Otherwise, if it's just surface level and not in Jesus, then the, fir the, the first time that something happens that we don't like, we'll just walk away. It has to be in Jesus because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. One of my favorite passages of scripture, I, I just love this. Um, whenever, whenever I read uh, the Gospels, I always find it, I always feel like I'm a wee bit like the Apostle Peter. Not because he's an Apostle, but because he's a bit of a screw-up like me. Um, he's, quick to, he's quick to jump in with both feet, but he's also quick to <laughs> run away. Um, he's a 100% he's kind of guy. He's either all in or all out, and that's me. No in between with me. But there's this point in John chapter 6 when, when, Jesus starts talking about, uh, when Jesus starts talking about his body broken and, and, and his blood spilled. Uh, and it gets difficult for people, and loads of his followers leave him until only the 12 are remaining. And then Jesus turns around and he says, Are you not going to leave too? And Peter says, 
To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knew that eternal life is only found in Jesus. He knew that he had to remain in Jesus to have oneness with God. He knew that he had to remain in Jesus to have that verdict of not guilty. He knew that he had to remain in Jesus to have that word that brings life. He knew that in Jesus, he had to remain in Jesus to have that blessing of life forevermore. It's only found in Jesus. And so this is how we make our home with, in oneness with the people of God. By staying with Jesus, by staying in Jesus, by remembering the words of eternal life. By remembering the life-giving, not guilty verdict that's been declared over us. That's the blessing he's commanded, the blessing of eternal life. When he commands and he says, not guilty, you have eternal life. Is this goodness and unity? It's our duty, so we walk in it, but it's our delight, so we rejoice in it and we experience it and we revel in it and it's delicious and it's lovely. And so many of us have have enjoyed that together, haven't we? But the source of the unity is God. Through Jesus, we share in the unity that God has within himself. He invites us, in a sense, into into the experience of the Trinity, into the experience of God himself. And so we seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We flee division. And the blessing of unity then is eternal life. It's life forevermore. Because we're in Jesus, God has commanded the blessing of everlasting life. And it's not something that we will just get one day. It's something that we get to experience right here and right now. And the good news is, if you don't know Jesus yet, you can get in on this. It's open to you. It's open to anyone. The good news is that, that, that this invitation is open to you as well. All you have to do is just, uh, like, like, like Rachel said, just come with your sin and say, Jesus, this is all I have, but I trust that you're more than enough. And it's this unity that we're going to celebrate now through, through taking communion together. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. Uh, in other places, it's called the Eucharist. But communion simply means oneness. It simply means a coming together. It simply means something that we share together. In this symbolic meal, we practice living the oneness that we have in God. We practice oneness with God and we practice oneness with each other. Just like these ancient Israelites ascending the hill together to worship the one God, we come to the table together with one heart and one mind to celebrate that we are united with each other and we're united with God because of what Jesus has done. His sacrifice of, of body broken and blood spilled means that we can have union with God and union with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, thank you for your blessing, your excessive blessing, your grace upon grace upon grace, like waves on the, on the shore of a sea that never stops coming to us. And so it is the, the blessing of the unity that we have with you and that we have with each other. Lord, I pray against division in this church. I pray in Jesus' name that the devil would not get a foothold. I pray in Jesus' name that we would be united uh, not through the way we try on a surface level to get on with one another, but that we would be united in the gospel of Jesus. We'd be united because you have first made us united with yourself. Lord, give us oneness. Help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit and help us to live the kingdom of God here on earth. In Jesus' name, for your glory, amen.